Right, we're continuing to work our way through the life of Moses. And if you remember that from Exodus 25 to 31, God in great detail actually explains the structure at which he will meet his people in worship and the way in which his people must come to him in worship, which is interesting with the sort of prophetic words that came out this morning. Now that actually is a profound irony in the light of the text that we're going to read because as Moses is up on the mountain, actually hearing intricate details on how God has provided for and take initiative for um, the people so that they might come into the presence. Down at the bottom of the mountain, his people are also taking initiative to decide how they will come into the presence. Um, and what we're going to look at constitutes one of the great crises in the history of Israel. And maybe uh, even today is thought as the most significant crisis in the whole history of Israel. So significant is this crisis that you will read that Israel was nearly no more because of this one crisis. I don't know whether you're like this, but I don't want to be no more. <laughs> so I want to take this seriously. So Exodus chapter 32, uh, verses uh, 1 to 10. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold uh, uh, that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made them a golden calf. And they said, uh, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation Tomorrow shall be the feast of the Lord. And they rose early in the next, the next day and offered burnt offerings and bought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you bought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I'm going to look at some of the, the background. There are several 
uh, huge themes that run through this section of Exodus from Exodus 25 uh, to 31. There are the instructions for the tabernacle and worship, 35 to 40. There's an account of those instructions being carried out under the careful eye of Moses. And finally in 40, and at the end of that chapter, there is God dwelling in the tabernacle which he'd instructed the, the children of Israel to make. And right in the middle of um, the, these chapters, there is this story where God is dealing with the issue of worship, but the people violate everything that God told his people to do. And the passage is in Scripture, therefore it has a purpose. And that purpose must mean that it has application to us. What? Golden calves and earrings and stuff like that appears to be the stuff of films. And the danger is with scriptures like that, we look at these guys and we go, what on earth do you think that you were doing? Instead of saying, this must be in scripture because that's me. Now, I don't know whether you've thought, well, golden calf me. Because normally you go, no, I'm into this sort of tabernacle worship me. But I'm not into the golden calf me. But actually God places this in Scripture so that I, me, Nigel Lloyd, can learn. I have to ask, how close, Nigel, are your attitudes to, and how similar are your attitudes to the attitudes of these people? So let's look briefly at some of the themes. The, the whole section highlights the person and the role of, and the importance of a mediator. Uh, without a mediator, Israel was not going to survive this incident. And that's the whole point of Exodus 32. Without the man, Moses, appointed by God who has now, after walking with many years with God, begun begun to be more like God than he was in the beginning. Without this man's role, Israel does not exist after verse 10 that you have read. He doesn't exist. That's it for them. But Moses is God's instrument. God chooses him to be the conveyor of God's mercy for people. And in Exodus chapter 20, you get an idea of how they realize that they need a mediator because they actually ask him to be their mediator. And now 40 days uh, up on a mountain, they've just dismissed that. And after Exodus 32 and verse 10, and after their encounter with the living God, there is no doubt that they will know that they need somebody to represent them. And of course, I know it's a big theme, but I don't know whether you've realized this, that without a mediator, you and I are shot. We are shot. (laughs) We, we can have a laugh in God's presence, but actually, without a mediator, we're as in much trouble as they are there. 
and Moses foreshadows something that allows us into the very presence of God with all this sin and baggage. He foreshadows Jesus. And without Jesus, we are consumed. Consumed. But we have him. And it is an extraordinary miracle that we stand before God through the person Jesus Christ and can stand before him. It is balmy but true. If Jesus were to withdraw himself, we would be consumed. That is the fact. Another theme is what the theologians call the doctrine of sin. One commentator said this, this is another story of the fall. In fact, it seems that, that, that all the Bible is just a story of mankind falling, isn't it? Because Genesis 3 is the fall. And like the rebellion of the people of earth before the time of Moses in Genesis 6 and, and all that sort of stuff, they keep falling. Like the Tower of Babel, they keep falling And it just gives us into a unique insight into the sinfulness of God's people. This is God's people who are sinning. This is not a magnificent holy bunch that sort of says, no, this is God's people who are sinning. These were God's covenant people. And remember, three times they've said this. I don't know whether this sometimes goes, this is how I think. I thought, how many times, Nigel, have you done this? They, three times they've said, yes, Lord, we will follow you. We will do it your way. You tell us. We do it. We follow. your God. We are just your people. Forty days away from Moses. And they're going, where's the golden calf? Forty days. They cannot be righteous For 39 days, for 40 days. They just can't do it. Please, could you just be holy for 40 days? Yeah, no problem. It's easy. No, bring it on. No, they muck it up. 40 days. Moses is not there. God apparently is sort of off the ticket and they have fallen. Let me just put this in context. These people have had an encounter with with God that you and I would die for. They have seen cloud, fire, manna, quail, rivers and seas opening. They have heard the voice of the Lord audibly. All that sort of stuff. Now you would think... One of those meetings would be sufficient for 40 days, wouldn't you? Just the cloud would give you 51 days. Cloud and fire, 102. You you could go forever, but these people don't seem to be able to manage 40 days, even when they have... And it just shows us that we can be in the presence of God right now, and in an hour's time, we can sin. We can do it. Before we look at them, the doctrine of sin is something that is right closer than, well, it just is closer. Thirdly, 
this section does not highlight that Moses has a greater compassion for God's people than God. Because it appears here that God seems to turn his back. But this passage does not teach us that Moses loves God's people more than God does. Rather, it highlights how Moses, he's now feeling the compassion of God. In Exodus 3, when we looked at it earlier, Moses, uh, Moses was, uh, encounters God and, Mo- and God says to Moses, Moses, I'd like you to uh, go and I'd like you to rescue those people. And he goes, what? Can't you send somebody else? There's got to be a better guy than me. You know, frankly, he said, you know, I've tried doing the stuff, you know, I tried killing the Egyptian and all that sort of stuff. Oh, I'm just, you know, surely there's got to be another guy. You know, I don't, I mean, really what he's basically says, frankly, they can rot in Egypt. I'm happy here, you know. Send somebody else. By the time we get to the, the, the end of this chapter, which we don't get to, Moses is actually saying to God, I will take it on the chin for these people. There is an extraordinary growth in character and change in this one man. Now here's the the, the crux of it. That actually that is our purpose. Our purpose is that, that we should not be the same as we are. That actually, that God meets with us as he was meeting with people. That we get up from those meetings and we become more changed into his likeness. There should be tangible difference from week to week as we meet and encounter God. We should be coming more Christ-like, more like him in everything that we do. Because God is working on us and God is changing us. Here is the simple thing about you and me. If I am the same as I was yesterday and the day before, I am not learning or changing. The process is, even with Moses, is that with all these things and the sin of the people, which was an absolute nightmare if you are leading them, is that the process is that I am here to become a changed person. And I should be able to say to people, how was I yesterday? How was I a week ago? What was I like? Am I still moving? Am I changing? It's to do with growth in God's character. So, there's the question. How are we doing? How are we doing, folks? Well, actually, I'm just the same as I was 20 years ago. Then, we've got a big battle on our hands together, don't we? Oh dear, there's loads of points. We'll do this quick then. We can't take the worship of God into our own hands. Israel's rebellion against God. It's because I can't flash him up. I can't do the PowerPoint thing when it goes. So I don't know. So you get the lot, okay? I was talking to, just just aside, and I know that Eric Roy might Eric Roy was saying to me yesterday, because I'd prepared this and I was away at a conference, and Eric Roy was saying to me, he said, do you do PowerPoints? And I thought, no, oh, PowerPoints. I can do PowerPoints. He said, I hate people who just put their points on a slide. He said, I prefer to put maps and diagrams that enhance my preaching. 
And I've got this on my little thingy, you know, the thing that you shove here. And he's saying, and what are you doing tomorrow? And I'm, and I'm just thinking, I, I'm just having coffee. I don't care. So, Eric, this is for you. I'm sinful. I'm trying to learn. If you'll notice, Eric, there a few weeks ago, I couldn't do this. Now I am. God's developing me. Okay. Right. Israel's rebellion against people, uh, against God, is actually explained in quite detail. If you look at verse 1, we'll see that Israel is very impatient. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down the mountain, they got Aaron together. They got together with Aaron. And they're impatient on a long, uh, the impatient, the long delay uh, comes up where it says, uh, they gathered themselves together. Now, such was their impatience that the Hebrew words here is not sort of nice and happy. It's the same situation that you might see in a school playground where the bullies go and circle a person. That's the emphasis here. It's a menacing phrase. They gather around Aaron as if to threaten him. As if to imply that if he doesn't do something, there will be trouble. Aren't he going to do something with the bloke that's gone? And they come to him looking for, we'll get, we'll, we'll get another one. He's not coming back. And what is extraordinary is that quickly they want to replay. It's interesting, isn't it? What we need is a new pastor. Now, I'm not saying that because... What we need, because, you know... Rupert's the, well, just, let's have Rupert. Rupert will change. It's very interesting that with all of these things, that, that what happens is that personal responsibility often goes out the window. And what we need is that we'll get rid of him because, you know, Rupert can do it better. Here he comes, Rupert. Please try. But we won't go into that. Okay. But what is more happen is that they think that not only changing a leader will make the difference, but not only that, that changing their leader with a bit of an enamoured, what do you call it? Oh, come on, Nigel. Enamoured object. Just say it for Thank One of them. It's a golden calf. They just think... And it's really strange that happiness, happiness, shut up, happiness is not an inanimate object. Phil Harmon said to me this week, have you seen the BMW um, adverts? So I said, no. But when people say to me, I go and find out. So I found the BMW adverts. And basically it says that this, that BMWs bring you joy. That's what it says. It's true, isn't it, Phil? It's true. BMW, BMWs. And do you know... That what they're saying is that you can experience incredible, magnificent, thrilling, exciting, mouth-dribbling passion when you have a BMW. I had a BMW in South Africa when we had a sabbatical. Okay, it was 20 years old, but it was a BMW. Let me just tell you about BMWs. They boil over, they break down, they spill oil, 
They, there are bits and there's doors that do not open, all this sort of stuff. It is an object. It is a golden calf. It cannot bring you joy. Let me just get, they are wrong. We could get them on the trading standard stuff here. It cannot, shut up, no, it cannot bring you joy. It is, BMW is a golden calf. You won't buy one now, will you, because you'll be all frightened. But there you go. Neither can any of them. So, the people speak, having decided to buy the BMW for joy. They then go and speak disrespectfully and dismissively to Moses. The people saw that Moses had delayed coming down the mountain. The people assemble around Aram and look what they say. Come, let's make a God for this, for this guy Moses. Basically, let's replace him. The man who has brought us out of the land of Egypt, this guy Moses, oh, what's his name? He's gone 40 days. He must be incredibly reliable. Isn't it just great that we can see what we think is sin in other people's but we don't quite notice it in our it's the speck and plank we can do that so easily Moses the old tow rag the unreliable unfaithful pain in the butt he's gone just hold on a second who is making the golden calf Forget the golden calf. Moses is unreliable. Hey, rat bag, we should get... And we can be so like that, can't we? We can spot this sin and ignore this sin. What does the Bible say? It says, take it out of your own eye first. First. Where was I? Anyway. But then... What it moves on, and you see, they've forgotten that Mo, about Moses. But Moses actually has, as we've just, we talked about early, actually fallen in love with this sinful people. And by God's grace, something has happened in Moses. And what Moses has been doing over this time is that he's begun to love these people. He has begun to feel for these people. He's begun to look at them and say to them, these are my people. And over here, you've got people who are actually saying, we don't care for him very much. In fact, we think he's nothing but a pain in the butt. Let's get rid of him. And then we come to a cross where a person who is named Jesus Christ comes for an unfaithful people, a people who will dismiss him, a people who will not love him, not care for him, in fact will hate him and crucify him, and he'll say for them, even though they think like that, I will die for them, as Moses would be prepared to die for his people. And do you know, when we were talking earlier, and we were talking about, come on, you've got to give you the cost and all that sort of stuff. We, we, can't, we won't do it by driving people. We will only do it by our, our realising what Jesus did for us. When we catch the cross, 
the resurrection, the sin that is in us, the failings of us as a people, the wonder of Jesus Christ. It's that that will motivate us. I can't motivate you by saying you must do. You have to catch the wonder of the cross. That's the way. The fact that although we are faithless, he was faithful. That's the wonder of it all. But it gets worse. Aaron grants grants their request. Moses leaves Aaron in charge. Aaron, I'm just going to be missing for a bit. You're in charge. Just going to go on holiday. When I come back, Rupert, everything will be fine, won't it? Yeah, Nigel, trust me. Come back. What's the goal? What are you done, Rupert? What's going on here? What's this big thing? That's what happens. And later, what I find extraordinary is that the rabbis in the chapter, what they do is that they sort of, you know, well, you must understand the pressure that, that, that Aaron was under. What is that? Why is that? Look, he was under pressure. This happened and that happened and that happened. So he sinned bad. And it's almost as if, well, you know, if, 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 if Wrexham lose against Chester, doesn't matter, does it? Let's just go and... Get absolutely legless, beat a few people up, murder a few, that's all right, create a goal. Come on, no, none of that. We should never give an excuse for sin and never give an excuse for our own sin. No? I sin and I fall short of the glory of God. I am a sinner saved by grace. Just those facts. Can't God name it? I'm pathetic. I'm useless. I'm an absolute toe rag before the presence of God. I am a sinful being that only has become into the kingdom of God because of what one person has done for me on the cross. I'm a rat bag. And the only hope that I've got is in one man and that one man, Jesus Christ. We need to just name it. So, don't spit on your notes. You'll notice that all the people come to him. All the people. And Aaron makes this golden bull or an ox. What is balmy about this is that they don't just make something. They revert back to type. So, maybe this is not just a golden calf, but maybe this is the bull god that's in Egypt. They've reverted back to type. Well, actually, you know, over here, I love Jesus. Over here, I hope nobody finds out what I'm really like. Actually, I haven't left that yet, clearly. To become a Christian means that you leave the golden bull of Egypt and you follow him. You cannot drag the golden bulls with you into the kingdom of God. They will battle for you. We become new creations because of what Jesus did, leaving the sin behind. Else what happens is that moments of pressure arises 
we don't go to Jesus, we go back to sin. If we have not left them behind, our natural instinct will be to go back to the sin. Why? This is one for you, Tim. It'll be on the... Because Tim, Tim reminded me that he once said that sin is great. Here's another one-liner, Tim. Why do we go back there? Because actually, sin is attractive for short-term pleasure. And that's what happens. Verse 6 says, there's a feast day. And uh, the feast day comes and the people worshipped worship their, their new God. But I want you to notice some interesting things. I want you to notice that you get several things that occur here. You've got a, you've got a, a golden calf. And then you've got um, an altar. And then you've got a temple. And then you've got a feast. And then you've got a celebration. And all these things are built up on top of that. And the product of the end of those things is what? Is immorality. It says that the people went out to play. Basically, the people went out and had an orgy. That's what happens. And you know, we can construct things that look so close, but they are not close. We can, have, we can have an altar, we can have, we can have a feast, we can have a celebration and all that sort of stuff, but it's not God. Not God. And sometimes, you know, folks, we, we are verging sometimes on saying, hey, come on, we, you know, all these other, they're close to us, aren't they? Well, because they have a feast and because they have an altar and because they have a celebration and because they have something that is in throne, does not mean they're close to us at all. At all. And it's interesting that what the Bible clearly says is here, that, that these things actually lead to sinful behavior. That's where that goes. So, let's go back then. The first thing that we learn is, that's important to us is how to worship God. And we're going to have to learn to worship God Patiently. <laughs> we're going to have to be patient with him. The people were impatient and then they took matters into their own hands. Now I can say this to you because I've done this. I can create happy meetings. We can, we can wind it up a bit. I can do that. Let me just say, sinfully, I've done that. I've done Pastor Nigel wind it up meetings. Please come down to the front and we pray for you. Let's have happy meetings. We can wind the worship up and we can do that. But it will take time to build church. You can build a happy meeting tomorrow. It will take time to build church. It's going to take time to build the church. It's going to take time to... Uh, to plant another one and another one and another one. It's going to, and the enemy of our faith is going to be impatience. Impatience. I waited for the Lord and he inclined to me. Waiting will be our greatest struggle. The other thing that we've got to know as well, that you can't choose 
your own mediator. God chose Moses. God chose Jesus to represent us. And anything less does not work. It does not work. I wonder whether you've chosen Jesus as your mediator. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Have you chosen Jesus to be your mediator? Perhaps you are a Christian. I wonder whether even now when you say, look, Jesus, I I choose again to use you as my mediator. Do you know, I I find it quite strange that because of my background that I realized that Jesus was not my mediator, that actually the Bible was was my mediator. Chris is just frowning and trying to work that one out. What I'm going to send you to do, Chris, is for coffee with Phil Harmon to explain that one to you. But I was more enthralled with the Bible than I was with the Jesus of the Bible. I was more, uh, and that was it was, we can be, we can be thrilled with styles of worship. You can even follow the man, the preacher. You can get wrapped up in communion cups to not to communion, that sort of stuff. And we can forget that we gather to Jesus. He's the choice. He's God's choice. He's God's choice. We could dismiss almost everything and still gather to Jesus. And we also can't do, we can't put God in the box that we want him to do, to be in. What God is saying is that he's sending Moses up the mountain. And he's saying, Moses, I'm going to design a style for you, a way in which you'll meet with me. And then down the bottom here are the people saying, guys, let's choose how we want to meet with God. Good idea. Clash. We can't, we can't decide that. It's not for us to be decided. We, we can't miss things out. We can't miss out he- heaven or hell. We can't miss, we've, got to, we've got to have the whole canon of Scripture in, in what we do. And we can't design things that just become, make it a little bit easy for us. I had an invitation the other week in regard to a church meeting. It's not in this area before one or two of you start asking and making a phone call and texting. Okay, but it was an invitation. And I was invited to a soaking meeting. Which is quite, you are invited to a soaking music meeting. Thank you. This is what it said. It said this. It says, pillows, blankets and soft music will be provided. It's true. You can ask this, Callie, I saw the invite. This was what I was invited. What was happening here? It's golden calf stuff. We don't want to encounter God like this. What we'd like to do is that we'd like to sort of lie here a little bit and I'd like to put my hands like this and, and just listen to some lovely saxophone music and go home. It's, and you just think, what? And my danger was that I wanted to do the what thing. But actually, do you know that we can all do that? We can, and we all need to have something in our heart that says, I'm prepared to meet with you how you want to meet with me. Now, just so that we can get it right, 
Rupert, let me ask you this question. Does the Bible say that we shout to the Lord? Mm. It does. Okay. Well, I'm not going to go to the soaking music meeting. But hold on. I wasn't prepared to shout to the Lord. I wasn't prepared to do what he asked me to do. We have to meet with God how he wants to meet with us. The other side of this coin as well is that amongst those people, I was sure that what you can have is that you have people that were sort of saying, well, you know, I, I want to love God here and while Moses is off doing his stuff, the, the, this will be fine. The golden calf will be fine. No, that doesn't work either. You know, no, we can't serve two masters. You can't. The Bible tells us clearly that we seek first the kingdom of God. And it's something that has to be settled in our hearts. I'm going to move forward because I'm just going on a bit. Let's just move. Let's just go. Um, Too many points. Too long. Verses 7 to 10. We need to clearly see God's view of sin and the consequences of it before we truly understand the mediator. What do I mean like that? Unless we understand how absolutely rotten I am, we're not going to understand the depth of what he did for us. That's going to be it, really. I, I look at the state of this, and then I look at what he did, and I am in lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's the short. Verses 7 to 10. 7. God knows what's taking place, even though Moses does not. Now, that's a lesson. (laughs) So God tells Moses to go down and see for himself. And God uses the language of atonement. What do I mean by that? We'll come back to that. Remember the children of Israel had disowned Moses. That man who brought us out of the land. Let's have a calf. That's how it goes. And now God disowns them. He says to Moses, so nobody owns them. It's not he who brought them out of the land, but Moses. He says to them, go talk to those people who you brought out of the land. Now that is quite strange. Because actually, God told Moses to do it. God did the miracle that can do it. And he opened the waters so that they could come through. But what God is saying to Moses is, now, actually, you did it. What is he saying here? He's saying an extraordinary thing that you and I need to catch the importance of. Because what what he's saying to Moses is, you need to own their sin. You need to own their sin. And isn't that an extraordinary picture of Jesus? That Jesus came to earth to own my sin. My sin. He came to this earth so that he could own this sin. He said, I'll be responsible for the consequence of your sin. It is a picture of atonement. It's the picture of Jesus. Then in verse 8, God accurately (laughs) nails them. 
Specifically, they have done this by worshipping an idol. They claim that it will save them. Notice there's the impatience. Then he says they've turned aside from the way. But God doesn't say you turned away from me. He said you turned aside from my way. In other words, you have turned away from the way that I told you to do it. And then he commands them, you have broken my directives. And uh, Moses comes down, doesn't he? If you remember, and he breaks the tablets. He's not having a hissy fit when he breaks the tablets. He's not Moses uh, sort of in in the thrones of histrionics or out of control or needing an aspirin. This is just a visualization of what these people have done. It's just, a, and sometimes we need to catch that in our own hearts. That Moses comes down, he's carrying the tablets, he looks at the people, and he will throw them on the floor. He'll throw them on the floor. It's just a visualization. And then he says specifically uh, that they've done this by making an idol. We know that. But then the Lord says to Moses, I have seen Israel. Now that doesn't mean that I saw them doing this. But it means I know what they are like. I know what they are like. And it's just really interesting. And I find it really challenging that God knows what we're like. That, That... He knows underneath what our heart is really like. I may not be able to read you, but God can read you. You are an open book to him. And we sometimes do not like to use these negative terms to motivate people. But here, it's using it to motivate people. Don't be fooled. The leadership team or whatever might not be able to read you. But God does. Don't be fooled. So I need to not be fooled either. Now here's an interesting point. Verse 10. The Lord gives a four-part directive and a, a verdict. First he says, let me alone. Now this is not leave me alone. This is not God saying, you know, I'm some sort of teenager that is having a bit of a fit downstairs because you're going you're gonna to turn the television off and you're going to make them do the homework so they're going up and slamming the door. That's not what this is. God's saying to Moses, do not come interceding to me. And this is interesting because precisely what Moses was going to do was that he was going to become, he was going to intercede for them. He was going to do it. And what is lost in this passage is that there needed to be some satisfaction for these crimes. And over here, God's saying to, to Moses, don't you come interceding to me. He was actually knowing that God, that actually Moses was going to do the very thing that God was almost implying to do that. Why is that? Because of what was said in the worship. There is a redeemer. There is a redeemer. That the sin 
of the people needed satisfaction. And that satisfaction would be found in the one man, Moses. And it points to one thing, and one thing only, that our satisfaction for our sin is found in Jesus, in him. If he doesn't go in, I'm puzzled. (laughs) I'm really puzzled. Because it is extraordinary the amount of sin that can be found in this human body. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, it satisfies the Father so that I can enter into his presence. And because of the one man, Moses, even in the face of these people, who was prepared, even though, Mo- even though God's wrath was turned against him, to say, I'm going to intercede for you. I will face the punishment for them. I think it's just an outstanding example of what Jesus has done for us. Because what he does is he says, he goes on and he says, that I may destroy them. There, that is our point, folks. Here it comes. That is our destiny for our sin. That I may destroy them. Israel's rebellion has earned the right to be destroyed by God. My sin has earned the right to be destroyed by God. That would be just. That would be just. But here comes grace. Here it comes, right at the very end. Because grace comes like this. And I will make them into a great nation. It is just, it is right, it is fair, it is, I cannot complain, I should be destroyed. But because of the work of Jesus, in this, because of the work of Moses, God comes and says, because of Moses, for us, because of Jesus, I will make you into a great nation. Don't you wonder at that? Don't you wonder at the extraordinary idea that Jesus could come and not destroy us, but actually say, okay, I'll use you to prove who I am. It is just outstanding that I should ever enter into those sorts of privileges, that God would want to take me and use me for his name's sake, that I should be chosen to represent him in the community, that I should be chosen to serve him, that I should be chosen for all those extraordinary things, that he desires to make us into a, a great nation. These were the very words that he said previously to Abraham. Or would go on, sorry, talk in, in Genesis. Sorry, would go on. He would, that he would have spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, 18 and 21. He could have said, look guys, I made these promises to Abraham. 
and I thought you were going to make it. But you've turned out to be a rotten bum deal. So what I'm going to do is just destroy you. Don't worry, we'll do it quick. Then I'm going to over here raise up some other people who will be godly, wonderful, good-looking, with beards and glasses. All that sort of stuff. We'll just forget you and I will use them. Surely that would be the good thing to do. But no, the very people, the very people who are golden calfing it, who are orgying it, who are making altars and who are making feasts and whatever, those very people God will use to show the people of the earth himself. And I just think, grace. Grace. What? He wants to use me? Yes, he wants to use me. He does want to use me. You see, this whole section appears to be bad news. But it isn't. It isn't bad news at all. It is just an understanding of my sin, the work of Jesus, and the astounding, uncompromising grace that comes through him to us. It is just mad, mad. So I'll finish. Coming to grips with this passage, the violation of the covenant is actually a cataclysmic in its consequences. Here it was. They deserve to be disowned. We deserve to be disowned. They deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be cut off. But because of the one man, the mediator, who would be prepared to stand in front of them, Moses, and the one man, the mediator, who will stand before God on behalf of us, they get the privilege of becoming a great nation. They become the privilege. I have no more to say on this, really, except that we live and are benefits of God's mercy on a daily basis. I wake up, mercy. I go to bed, mercy. Tomorrow, mercy. Because I do not deserve an atom. But because of his great mercy, wow. 